0: Good morning. Lesson two on the Trinity. I am excited about this morning. I need to start out, though, with uh, um, part of my past and and maybe part of yours, part of your present even. Have any of you ever played uh, the, the game 20 questions? You know, we played it a lot growing up because we lived uh, for a good bit of time in upstate New York and all of my grandparents were from Texas so every summer we'd drive from Rochester, New York to San Angelo, Texas and then over to Palestine and back up. And that's a drive. Mom and Dad made it a game that we played in the car quite a bit basically to stop Catherine and I from killing each other. <laughs> Fighting. <clears throat> or fussing. Um, I have five children, Becky and I have five children, and and we have uh, found it very useful as well, even on the long drives in Houston. 20 questions, the way we play it, is it's either an animal, or it's a vegetable, or it's a mineral. And someone has 20 questions to figure it out, and they can ask those questions, but the questions have to have yes or no answers. Is that the way you all played it? And so, you know, if, if you're playing 20 questions, question might be, is it an animal? And if the answer is no, you can cross animal off the list. Next question, is it a mineral? If the question, answer is no, you can cross mineral off the list. But you know, if you've asked those two questions, you don't need to waste one on, is it a vegetable? Right? Because we know it's got to be a vegetable, it's not a mineral, and it's not an animal, and it's got to be one of those three. That's logical. It's kind of like a verbal version of the game Clue. You know, you you can eliminate, if it's not Professor Plum, it's not Professor Plum. It's got to be one of the others. The yes and no answers uh, uh, help you think logically to some degree. I put it up in a little chart our yes answers are positive information, our no answers are negative information, but there's still information, right? You're still learning something from the no's. So if we were going to play and you found out it's a vegetable, you might ask the question, is it green, and you get the answer no. It's not green. Well, if we know it's not green, would you ever want to say is it a green bean? No, that'd be that'd be stupid. Because it's not green. Okay. I tell you that for reasons that will become a little more apparent as we work through the lesson. But I want to stop right now as we start to talk about God and the Trinity. And I want to tell you that we need to proceed with caution. How many of you are human? Almost everybody. We're talking about divine God. We're talking about God in His infinite being. And we're not just talking about it, we're thinking about it. And we proceed with caution because we don't really have what it takes to put it all together. How many of you are really conversant with quantum physics? Nobody. Maybe some that I'm not seeing. But quantum physics is not like just something that seems real easy to the brain right now, to me at least. But I'll tell you, it's 2 plus 2 equals 4 compared to the majesty and being of God. It's, It's kindergarten compared to God being graduate school. It's it's nothing. So Wolfhart Pannenberg, a, a European theologian, said any attempt, any intelligent attempt to talk about God must begin and end with confession of the inconceivable majesty of God that transcends all of our concepts. God is is inconceivably majestic. We're going to talk about Him. We're going to talk about the Trinity. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. But we need to confess immediately that God has inconceivable majesty and and being beyond what we're able to comprehend. So we approach today with some humility as we try to learn some things. Last week we talked about Tertullian, the North African lawyer, who was writing theology in Latin. Is really the first theologian to write in Latin. And he had to come up with some Latin words to fit what he was saying. He's the gentleman that came up with the word Trinity. Oh, that's not the Latin word. The Latin word Trin or Tri or Trini means three, like tricycle has three wheels, right? Trident has three forks, three tines to the fork. But Trinitas is a made-up word that we get Trinity from. It's just kind of evolved into Trinity. It wasn't. Uh, we talked about it last week. It'd be kind of like us saying um, threeistic or something from three. It's a word that Tertullian came up with because he was writing in a different language than the Greek, and he needed something to describe how God exists as three. So he said it's like uh, three-ish. He's threeistic. And, and, and from that word, we've now got the word trinity, which we just use. And, and all of us seem to have our own idea of what that actually means, trinity. But trinity, as we discussed last week, is not a word that's found in the Bible. It's the word that was invented uh, 150 years later by Tertullian. While trinity is not found in the Bible... The idea of the Trinity is certainly rooted in Scripture, and that's where it comes from. It's not made up by theologians. It is revealed by God Almighty. So, we have Trinity. Last week we played the song, Holy, 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 which ends God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. And we talked last week, and I asked this question. Who says God is three persons? If you remember this slide, I pointed out it wasn't in the Bible. Our word "persons" is a word that also, our word "persons" is a word also that comes from uh, uh, the Latin. It comes from the Latin efforts of Tertullian, the lawyer. Latin last week, as we discussed, has the word "persona" for a mask that that actors would wear during drama during a theater. And so, if the actor's going to play three different parts, he'd have three different masks. He might have a mask that looks like Lewis if he's going to be a goofy golfer. He might have a mask that looks like uh, 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 Larry if he's going to be the Internet whiz. He might have a mask, you know, whatever. And the different masks, those were called the different personas that the actor would hold up in front of him as he proudly declared his lines. That's the word that Tertullian chose to use in reference to God as three different persons, personas, three different masks, three different characters, three different appearances. It's a word he grabbed out of the Latin because he needed to try and express his concept. And ultimately, it's a word that's made it into our language, not only in dealing with God, but now we use the word person all the time. So... With that as the background last week, we said there is a problem, and we talked about it a little bit, but let's put the problem up on paper. Persona for God, by the way, came from Tertullian. Two problems, in a sense, we're going to break them apart into two. Problem number one, how is God three persons? How is he? How can one person be three persons? But at the same time, we've got to ask then, how is God one? Because we've got to not only figure out how he's three persons, but he's three in one. So how is he one? That's what I hope we can discuss today. That's, that's what's behind this class. Now, technically in this class, as I break it out, we have two goals. Our first goal is to better understand the Trinity. It is my prayer that by God's Holy Spirit, as we walk out of the doors today or as people turn off their their listening devices or reading devices, that everyone who comes into touch with this message will better understand the Trinity. But I've got a second goal, another very important goal behind this class, and I want to change how we think about God. Maybe turn our thinking upside down a little bit. I want to challenge you to consider that maybe we don't think as fully about God in, 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 in a process and in the ways that maybe we can. And that might be some of our problem understanding the Trinity. Somehow, when we think about God, we have forgotten how to play 20 questions. Remember 20 questions? It's not green. Is it a green bean? In theology... There are different kinds of theology. Theologians have talked about what's positive theology and what's negative theology. Positive theology is, here is what it is. There's Debbie Riddle. Debbie is a representative in the Texas House. That's part of who she is. That's a positive statement about her. But if I were to tell you there's Debbie Riddle, Debbie Riddle does not live in Dallas. Well, you know something negative about her. She doesn't live in Dallas. It lets you know that she lives somewhere other than Dallas. You get some information out of it. You can't say, oh, I think Debbie lives in Dallas. No, we know she doesn't. But it doesn't really tell us where she lives, does it? It just tells us where she doesn't live. It gives us negative information. Now, this is what theologians do with God. There are things we know that God is. There are affirmative, positive statements we can make about God. And there are also things we know God is not. This is not God. Can't always tell you what he is, but I can tell you some things he's not. So I can tell you there aren't three gods. There's only one. We covered that last week. There's only one God don't let other faiths, other monotheistic faiths, other faiths of one God, which is mainly the the, the the Muslim faith and the Jewish faith. don't let them say we have three gods. we don't have three gods we believe in one God. God's not three. now just because I know God's not three that doesn't tell me how he's one. It just tells me he's not three. It tells me whatever I fill in in that circle for God, I better not wander over the line to making God three because if I've done that, I'm committing heresy. We do know the Father is God. We do know the Son is God. We do know the Holy Spirit is God. Those are positive things we can say. But we also know he's not three. Are you following the approach? The idea of negative theology, here's something that God is not. Negative theology actually had its basis in some of the early church mystics who said God is so far beyond what we understand or think, we can't even really put him in positive terms that are dead on accurate. So the early mystics would just say, just speak in terms of what God is not. I disagree with them to some extent because I do think there are positive things we can say about God, not because we're so brilliant, but because God has revealed them to us. And God has made these positive revelations. But some of what we know is, is merely the boundaries. We don't have all the pieces inside the circle put together. We just know what's outside the circle. And that's how I want us to think about this today. I want us to think about it for three different reasons. First of all, if we use this approach, this approach teaches us because much of what we know about God is what he's not. I, can't, I cannot affirmatively tell you everything God is. I just can't do it. It's not because I'm stupid. Well, I may be stupid, but that's not why. I could be the brightest guy in the world. And I couldn't do it because my human mind is not going to understand the depth and complexities of infinite God. It's just not. I can understand many things. He's taken it upon himself and chosen to reveal to us many things. But I can't understand it all. And so being able to put the boundaries around it and and say, here's what I know he's not, is very helpful. Example. God's not visible. Or to use the way we write it in English, he's invisible. Okay? Well, the fact that God is not visible, that doesn't tell me what he's made of. That doesn't tell me what he is. That doesn't tell me he's, he's uh, invisible like oxygen, or he's invisible like a, 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 a molecule, or he's invisible because he's in another dimension, or he's invisible because he's spirit. or he's, I, It doesn't tell me a lot of things. It just tells me he's not visible. I'm not, I'm not physically seeing God right here, the entity, the supreme being. Second thing this approach does, this approach teaches us, but it also leaves us with room for awe, for wonder, for contemplation. It leaves us room to dwell on the majesty of God. It leaves us room to consider who He is. It leaves us room to be in awe because He is beyond what we can think. It leaves us room to fall down on our face before Him and say, I can't conceive of Your majesty. It leaves us room to not be able to answer all of the questions about God. It leaves us room to say, God, I don't understand why You're doing this, but Your ways are not my ways and You are not me and I trust You anyway. It leaves room for the unknown without us thinking that we're just blindly following God. It's not some blind leap of faith at this point. It's the intelligent response of saying, I don't understand all the complexities of God. Anybody who claims, I'm telling you, please be worried about anybody who hands you an 11 page lesson and says, sit down and listen for another 30 minutes, and I will explain all the complexities about God and the Trinity to you, and you'll walk out of here as smart as can be. Anybody who reduces God to that is, 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 is wrong. Remember our diagram? That's what we know. We know it's not a green bean. We don't know if it's going to be cauliflower or if it's going to be a carrot or if it's going to be a tomato. But we know it's not a green bean. See, we we don't have all of the answers of who God is. Sometimes we just know who he's not. We know God is not three gods. Now, third reason we want to use this approach. A lot of what we know about God and a lot of our understanding and a lot of orthodoxy, a lot of core Christian church teaching came from the fathers in our church going back thousand plus years confronting heresy and saying, this is wrong. Can't always tell you what's right, but I can tell you this is wrong. And that's what we're going to do for this class I've been able to go to the history channel and find some TV shows. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. Everybody. One, two, three, four. My daughter wants me to keep playing that song. Everybody makes mistakes. That's episode 1 of Heresy in the Church and responses about god here's here's what i'm saying not everyone who commits heresy is first of all not everybody who's a heretic is going to hell in my belief i don't think just because you have an incorrect view of the trinity you're going to hell you're not saved based on understanding God right. You're based on trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. When Philip converts the, er, is there for the conversion that the Holy Spirit does of the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, there's water, what's to keep me from being baptized? Philip's question is, do you believe Christ is the son of God? He doesn't say, well, let me give you a quiz on the Trinity and make sure you're orthodox. Because if you're not, there's no point in you being baptized. You're not going to join any church. You're going to hell anyway. Acts 2.38, when the people are contrite and cut to the heart and they say to Peter, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say and learn everything about the Trinity or you're futile and going to hell. There are people, now that doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean heresy is unimportant. Heresy is horrible because it does lead people down uh, the wrong path. Ultimately, it can lead to destruction. It does de, de, uh, devolve instead of, of, of help us grow. But a lot of what uh, has happened in the past has just been good people making honest mistakes. They just don't know what they're saying or doing and hadn't thought about it. God hadn't revealed it to them. Is God three entities? Can I say that? Can I say that without being a heretic? I nearly wrote it in the paper. I can't tell you how many times I've been talking about the Trinity and I say, okay, there are three entities. Well, in a sense, there are three entities. But in another sense, there aren't three entities. There's one entity. And maybe entity is not the right word to use for God. It's not one the church has traditionally used. It makes me think, okay, Tertullian, I understand why you made up a word. Because the words that we normally use for other things don't really fit. Is is God three beings? Well, I don't know if you'd want to say three beings. Maybe he's one being. But in a sense, he's three beings. Same problem. I'm not sure that word beings really works. Oh, I may use it and the way I use it, it may work and not be heresy, but someone else may get this tape or or someone else may get the lesson or walk out of here and start using beings in a different way where it is heretical. Not on purpose. It's just a different word in their brain. It registers differently. How about this? Is God three personalities? Oh, I don't know that we can use even that word. It's got the person word in it. But I'm here to tell you when we say three persons in English in 21st century Houston, Texas, we don't use the word persons the way Tertullian was. If Tertullian was right when he made it up. What does it mean to be three persons? Can you say three personalities? I don't know. How about this one? To say that God is, the Trinity is one in the sense that an egg is. You have the shell, you have the white, you have the yolk. Well, that may help our elementary school folks. It may help some of us as adults. Understand that one thing can be three things. But is that really what God is? Is—is Because is, you can have an eggshell without having an egg. And the eggshell is not a full egg. Yet we're told God the Father is full God. The egg white's not a whole egg, but God the Son is fully God. The egg yolk's not the whole egg, but God the Holy Spirit is fully God. Even our analogies break down to some degree and and can lead us into ideas that are outside of heresy. So some of the mistakes that have been made in the past and that are made in the present are just mistakes, and everybody makes mistakes, and nobody's perfect, and Hannah Montana got that right. So let's return to the History Channel, and let's look at three major heresies where people got it wrong in history. Let's understand what the heresies are, and as with all good TV shows, we have little theme songs to start out the TV show, so maybe you can pick the song out, even if you can't pick out the heresy. Ready? Episode number two on the History Channel. Recognize that song? It's God Save the Queen. See, if you were British, you'd all have stood up. <laughs> um, monarchianism. Not monarch like a butterfly, but a little bit more like a ruler, a monarch. Monarchia in Greek means one ruler. So a monarch is Greek. It means the one who's the ruler. Right now in England, that would be the queen. One ruler. Monarchianism, which is an ism added to the monarchia. Monarchianism means... There's really only one God. There's, there's this, this division between them is, is kind of illusory. It's kind of a, a, a visual trick, if you will. Um, this took a number of different forms in the, the first 100 years or 150 years of the church especially. Um, but here's, here's basically what monarchianism would say in one of its incarnations. It would say, you've got the Father who's in heaven. But then, that's God. But then God came to earth in the form of Jesus, so we call Him the Son when He comes to earth. And then He left, but He came back spiritually, and now we call Him the Holy Spirit. It's this one God, He just sort of comes. at We put a different label on Him depending on where, where His location is. Like, here I may be Mark, but when I'm at work, they call me boss. Same guy. Played Lewis in racquetball the other day. Here, I'm Mark. The other day, I must confess, I was loser. Same guy. Different labels. Different... And, and, and this was a, a, a problem in the early church. In fact, this is the problem Tertullian was writing against when he said i'm coming up with some words for this because you guys aren't getting it right it's a it's not just same guy with different names he says so so we put this on our chart it doesn't really tell us who god is but it tells us he's not the same being just in different forms or names there's there's more distinction in god than that you with me All right, next episode. This may be the only time we get to play the Rolling Stones in church. Under my thumb, also known as subordinationism, subordinationism, if you're a theologian, and you want to write a paper on subordinationism, go for it. People who will read this stuff will understand what you mean. Subordinationism. What it, it, it means in its roots, you know, the word subordinate, right? Subordinate means to something is under my thumb. It's, it's less than. And this grew out of one concept, for example, is that God the Father created Jesus the Son. So Jesus the Son is less than God the Father. Jesus the Son, or God the Father, or some tandem thereto, created the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is less than Jesus the Son or God the Father. That doesn't make them bad. These folks would say the Holy Spirit's great. It's just they would say Jesus the Son is greater and God the Father is the greatest. But this is taking from passages that talk of Jesus as the begotten Son of God and making it seem as, or where Paul says that he was created before the world, makes it sound, taking those literally to mean uh, that, that he was made out of nothing as opposed to what Justin Martyr said, for example, in writing. He said, if you took, there was a big fire and a bunch of wood in the fire, and you took another piece of wood and stuck it into the fire to catch fire and pulled it away? Well, in a sense, you've pulled away a flame that came from the first fire. He said, but you can't say that that flame is is newer because that flame was in the first fire. It's just removed from it, in a sense. That was his analogy, which falls short, like all analogies do, but it helps us grasp a nibble of the truth. Ultimately, we're going to land up on this in negative theology land. The church first did it at the Council of Nicaea in a big way. And you can go back. We footnoted uh, these lessons and, and crossed them to our church history lessons. But, but at the Council of Nicaea, uh, the, the church actually came together, all of the bishops, and and they fought against the heresy of Arius, the Arian heresy, which ultimately, uh, I believe, is responsible for much of Muhammad's teaching about Jesus and the nation of Islam because Muhammad learned from Arians who had been kicked out of the church and got sent over to, or left, and went to Saudi Arabia and set up their little monasteries there. But the idea that Arius had was that Jesus was made by God the Father. And there was a time When there was no son of God. There was a time before the son. And the Nicene Creed came out and said no. Here is. This. Is what we know. We believe. In one God. The father almighty. And in one Lord. Jesus Christ. The only begotten. Of the father. That is. Of the substance of the Father. Ectesousius in Greek. Of the substance. He's out of the, the essence of the Father. Like a flame out of a flame. He's out of the substance of the Father. He's God of God. He's light of light. He's true God of true God. He's begotten, not made. Wasn't created out of nothing. There He was was begotten. He was like like the flame begets another flame. He's of the same substance with the Father. He's through whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and our salvation descended, was incarnate, made, suffered, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and comes to judge living and the dead. We also believe in the Holy Ghost. continues those who say there was a time when he was not or jesus was not before he was begotten and that he was made out of nothing are those who maintain he's of another hypostasis another substance of sorts another another I don't know a good English word for it, but it's it's another uh, uh, essence. Or that the Son of God is created. Anybody who says he's of another essence, that he was created, or anybody who says he can change, he's mutable, or he's subject to change, those people are heretics and kicked out of the church. Now, at this point in time, really almost everybody's. this is not what we think of in catholic maybe this should be a small c this was the church there's all the bishops from all the different churches they all came together this was the vote this is where the holy spirit led them and and this is core orthodox christianity so if we put it up into negative theology we've already got the father son and holy spirit as being god God is not three gods. He's not the same being in different forms. But the Nicene Creed teaches us the Son was not created. It's not there was a time when there was no Son and now there's the Son. We know that's outside the bounds of orthodoxy. That's outside. doesn't tell us uh, some things about the Son we'd like to know. Then how was He begotten? but it tells us what we know is not true. You with me? All right, let's go to our last heresy, and for this um, we'll go back to TV, and maybe you can at least get the song, if not the heresy. Talking. That's what this one is. See, this is one that a bunch of us are guilty of without realizing it. The VGs just won't go away. This kind of treats God as a species. This is kind of like, to bring the Bee Gees back, the Bee Gees are all Gibbs. So there's only one Bee Gees, even though there are three of them in it. The brothers Gibbs make the Bee Gees. So there's one Bee Gees, but there are three of them inside the club. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all gods. So we'll just call them God. Because there are three of them. And they're different. So when you put them all together, you have God. We'll call it the Godhead. We'll say the Godhead is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't just put the Father in there because then you don't have all, all of God. But the problem with this is, God's not three gods, He's one. He's truly one. And God the Father is fully God all by Himself. Yet you cannot have God the Father without having God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And yet there is a distinction between the three, for the God the Son is praying to God the Father, Thy will be done. Father, if this cup pass let this cup pass from me. And God the Son is sending God the Holy Spirit. Or the Father is sending God the Holy Spirit, depending on the verse you read. But they're the same thing. And yet there is distinction. I'd love to tell you I'm going to make all of this make sense, but here's all I'm going to do is I'm going to say let's add to our columns. We know that there aren't three gods. We know God's not the same being in different forms. We know the Son was not created. And we know God's not just some species. You with me? All right. Now this is Pauline theology. So let's see if Paul used negative theology in the way he thought of God. I grab two verses as examples. First. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, which at the end of the lesson is typoed, is 1 Timothy chapter 16. I don't have a different Bible. I just have typos. God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, Paul says some things God is, and he says some things God isn't. God's the only sovereign. He's the only one. There's one God. There's one sovereign. Only one. God is the king of kings. You won't find a king that doesn't bow the knee to God. God is the king of all kings. God is the Lord of all lords. There's no Lord like unto our God. But he also gives us some things God is not. God's not ever going to die. Translated immortal. But God's without end. He's eternal. God's not ever going to end. Now, does that tell us how God keeps living? No. But it tells us that God is there. I can affirmatively say to you, regardless of the problems you have in your life, God is there. How? I don't know. But He didn't die. He's not dead. I know that God's dwelling... Where people may, that's a typo, not approach. He dwells in unapproachable light. You're not going to walk into the presence of God as you are right now. Neither am I. Can't happen. His light's unapproachable. We're not going to be able. Why? Well, what's wrong with his light? I don't know. He doesn't tell us positively. He just says it's unapproachable. He dwells in unapproachable light. That's what he gives us. And he can't be seen. He can't be seen. He doesn't tell us why. Here's a second one. God's immeasurable power raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, out of Ephesians 1. Now what does it tell us? It tells us that God is not limited in power. There's no limit. There is nothing God can't do. There is no limit to his power. God does not have power that's inadequate for anything you or I have faced, are facing, or will face in our life. There's no limit to his power. It tells us positively Christ is raised from the dead. Christ is seated with God. Want to know where? Well, it's in the heavenly places, but I can't tell you where exactly. I can tell you he's not subordinate to anyone in position, stature, or name. There's nobody above him. I can tell you that he's above every ruler and all rule. He's above every authority. He's above every power. He's above every dominion. Exactly where that makes him, I don't know. But don't go telling me someone else is higher than Jesus. Don't knock on my door in the name of your religion and come in and try and tell me that Jehovah God is higher than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is a step below, which is the belief of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't tell me that. I can't tell you exactly why Jesus is, is, is where he is, but I can tell you that there is nobody who rules over him. There's nobody with authority over him, and there's nobody with power over him, including God the Father. He's, he, is, he is God. Here's the bottom line. There are some things we can say about God affirmatively. A lot. God is love. God is light. God is three beings. God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. Those are distinct. There are some things we can affirmatively say, but there are some things we can say God's not. I can tell you, He's not just some species that has three living people in the species. I can tell you He's not uh, 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 some hierarchy of one more important than the other. I can tell you he's not three gods. Then I can also say that there's mystery, awe, and wonder on how it all works. And I'm not only okay with that. That warms me inside. Because I know it's right. And because... It keeps me humble. God is beyond me. And I know as he has revealed. But that's how I know and that's what I know. And so I go back to what Wolfhart Pannenberg said. Any intelligent attempt to talk about God must begin and end with confession of the inconceivable majesty of God. Which transcends all of our concepts. Do you really want a God? You can figure out and put in a box. Points for home. No one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Some translations say Jesus. You've got old manuscripts going back both ways. The best manuscripts seem to indicate that it should say the only God, not he, Jesus. No one has ever, but it's the same thing. No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus. Jesus is the only God. Just as much as the Father is the only God, just as much as the Spirit is the only God. The only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. You see the Son, you see the Father. Think of the desperate situation we would be in. You want to know why, um, uh, uh, in my opinion, God said in the Old Testament, don't make any images of him and yet we feel okay putting up sometimes a picture of Jesus or a dove for the Holy Spirit or seeing a stained glass window with, with such. God said in the Old Testament, don't make any images of me because those people that weren't even remotely close to understanding who he was, and any such image is as useful as a golden cow. We live at a time where God has given us a, full revelation of himself, a fuller revelation of himself In Jesus, we see Jesus, we see God. We don't run the risk, I hope, may we not run the risk of ever thinking that our picture represents God. Our picture brings us to mind Jesus Christ or the teachings within Scripture. But that's who God is. And we need never fear. We cannot understand God. He's too far beyond us because when we see Christ, we see God. When you see the compassion of Christ, you see God's compassion. When you see the love of Christ, you see God's love. When you see the, the, the gentle touch of Christ, you see the gentle touch of God. That's who God is. Jesus has revealed him. Point two. Paul talks about how in Christ he's been making known to us, God's been making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. It's very scriptural. To proclaim mystery about God. It's very scriptural to recognize that there are things about God that are beyond us. It's very scriptural to sing songs and to be filled with the understanding that this song is so inadequate. Because God is beyond what we can even say or what we can even think or what we can even dream. And that's okay. That's not only okay, that's good. That's the mystery. And it leaves us to humbly bow and leave room for God to be God with ways beyond ours. And final point. Go back to what Paul said in Timothy and let's add the last sentence. God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. So we leave here knowing not only some things about who God is, but hopefully knowing some things about who He is not. And in that, our picture becomes clearer. Would you pray with me? Most holy God, Father, Lord, Spirit, We bow before you as your children in wonder and amazement and awe at who you are, confessing readily you are beyond what we can think of, but hungering to know you more. I pray you'll continue to nourish and feed us through your Spirit, that you'll continue to open our eyes, inform our minds, touch our hearts, Open our ears. We want to know you better. We want to follow you more closely. We're honored to be your children. We're honored to call you our father. We pray through your holy work on Calvary. In Jesus' most holy name. Amen.